The last time we opened our lessons together, Peter reminded us that um, our faith in Jesus Christ involves a choice. And as God moves on our lives with his grace, we choose to respond. The life of faith is like a dance. It's like God initiates and we respond. God invites us to know about him through his word, and we read his word, and we agree that it is true. And then God invites us to know him relationally through Jesus Christ, and we respond to Jesus with belief, and then we're welcomed into God's family. Then God changes our status from lost sinner to beloved son or daughter, And then we respond by living into this this new identity that we share with Christ. You know, the life of faith is a a call and response. God graces our hearts and we respond in faith. He invites us to know his word. We read it and we believe it is so. He invites us to know the son of Jesus. We do. We receive him as savior. He invites us into his family. And then we respond by living out this new identity that we share in Christ. It's, It's a dance. Knowing Jesus as Lord and savior, it changes our lives, doesn't it? And it also changes our community Look around. Since you have come to be interested to know God's word, to know Jesus as Savior, you've, been, you've entered into a community of sisters or into a church family. The first thing that seems to uh, change when we get to know God is that we have a different kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father. He's no longer someone that we fear will punish us or judge us for our wrongdoings but someone that we know actually deeply loves us, someone who knows what's best for us, someone who has a plan and a purpose for our lives here on earth and throughout eternity. And then as God's children, we begin to resemble God's son, Jesus. Jesus shows us how to live life in a broken world as a spirit-filled person. With the Holy Spirit residing in us, we begin to change from the inside out. And that begins with how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, as we just sung about in this beautiful worship song that we sang, and then how we see the world around us. It changes. And then over time, we actually begin to change outwardly as well. So our former resemblance to our family of origin is replaced by our new resemblance to our spiritual family, because we are literally born again into a new identity as a Christ follower, and that means we're part of a new family the community called the church. Now, Peter's life was a parable of this truth because he spent three years hanging out with Jesus. And during that time, he was learning about Jesus. And he was learning about the kingdom of God as Jesus was teaching. Jesus graced Peter's life with a calling to leave his worldly vocation as a fisherman and become a fisher of men. And then Peter responded, right? With a resounding, he's like, yes, I'm all in. And over the course of time, Peter began to agree that Jesus is the Son of God. And then he responded by devoting his whole life to following Jesus and to loving him and serving him. And then Peter witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's the day when the church on earth was born. In fact, Peter was on that day powerfully preaching the word of God. And 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus on that day. 
Peter played this instrumental part in the foundation of the early church. And he understood that following Jesus changes everything about a person's identity and their community. So let me ask you, as we start to think about this lesson, has knowing Jesus changed everything about your identity and your community? It has for me. I learned about God when I was a little girl, and my mom read me storybooks about the Bible, and then I attended a church where I learned more in Sunday school. I never, ever questioned God's existence. It never occurred to me to consider that God didn't exist. But I had spent time when I was young thinking about him, wanting to know him better, wanting to understand more about who he was. So I knew about God, and I believed fully that he existed. But I actually didn't really know him relationally until I was in my last year of college and I was contemplating the next steps for my life. I was thinking about what what my life was going to be like after graduating from college. And I knew that following the world's values had left me really empty. And I wanted more. I really did. I wanted to know what God's path was for my life. And I wanted to follow his path. And I knew that that meant giving Jesus my full attention and making him the priority of my life and actually agreeing with him that his wisdom and his instruction in Scripture was going to be the best instruction and wisdom for my life. That, that the best life that I could possibly have was going to flow out of his word. Um, I, so I chose to follow him. I chose to trust him to lead me. And in that moment, I knew inside of myself that I ceased from merely just knowing about him and believing that he existed and that I entered into a relationship of actually knowing him, of actually actively engaging and following him in my life. And I laid my whole life in his hands, and I remember the moment that I just asked him, please, will you lead me forward? Show me where to go. Show me what to do. Show me where to live. Show me where to work. And he did. He directed me to a a job that was amazing in a new city, and he directed me to a church community that actually changed the whole trajectory of my life. Because in this church community, which actually loved the Word of God and preached the Word of God in a way that I had never actually heard it preached before, I joined a group of young adults, and these young adults loved studying the Bible. And I began then to understand things about God through his word that I had never, ever known before, that literally his word came alive in my heart. And I made an amazing group of friends, a group of young people that became near and dear friends. And that was everything to me because I was a 21-year-old single person living in a big city where I had no friends. And God gave me this whole community of friends. Um, And then they introduced me to this guy, Bob Nowak, and well, 36 years of marriage later, the rest is history. So knowing God relationally um, changes who we are, and it changes how we experience life with other believers in this community called the church. So as we look at this next section of Peter's letter, I'd like us to think about a couple things. I'd like us to think about who are we now? That is, now, after we've received Christ as our Savior, who are we? How does our identity change when we receive salvation in Christ? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does that even mean? 
And what, how is living in the church different from living in the world? And so Peter today is going to help us answer some of these questions. And in our passage today, I titled this, Who Are We Now? Assuming that we've come to faith in Christ, who are we? And Peter, I think, is going to tell us three things. He's going to tell us we're thirsty babes. That's not in the, hey, baby. It's in like, wah, babes, <laughs> babes. Uh, we're thirsty babes. We're living stones, and we're holy people. He's going to tell us who we are in Christ. And so this is what I want us to walk away from today. God's people enjoy a new identity and a new community in Jesus Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, you have a new identity and you have a new community. And that is because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's dive in, shall we? As we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, it's where we are today, verse 1, it starts with the word, so... I'm like, so what? I've been disconnected from the study for two weeks. So, so what? I had to go back to chapter one and f- figure out what was Peter saying that now he's connecting it with a so. And what he's been saying in chapter one, if you can remember back a couple of weeks, was he was exhorting believers to love one another. Because it's actually possible in Christ to, for us to love one another. We're able to do that. We're not who we used to be. We've been born again by the living and abiding word of God. And so we know God's word changes us. We are able now to really love one another. So going back to 1 Peter 1, verse 22, he says this. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter was challenging us to embrace our new identity in Christ as we engage in loving relationships with other believers. He's saying, after all, look, we all have the same Heavenly Father. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We all belong to the same Heavenly Family. And we all live by the same instructions from God's Word. So he's saying, so live like it. We have this unity. We have all this in common. He's saying, live like it. And that means we need to stop doing certain behaviors that are destroying the love and unity of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. It's not River West Church or Lake Grove Presbyterian or Good Shepherd or Beaverton Foursquare. It's the church at, at large. It's every person who is a follower of Christ belongs to the church. The body of Christ of people who believe and live on this earth. So what he's saying, he's saying you need to stop certain kinds of behaviors that destroy the love and unity of the body of Christ, of the church. He begins by saying in verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Five words. Five words that are key relationship destroyers. Let's look at those. He starts with malice. Malice. Do you know that malice is one of the key characteristics of Satan? It's wickedness, depravity. It's a desire to harm other people by doing good, doing evil, despite the good you've received. 
So despite the fact that you've received good, you actually want to do evil and harm other people. It's one of the most wretched of the five words that Peter has listed. And then he says deceit. Deceit is cunning, treachery. It's deliberately tricking or misleading by lying. Who's the father of lies? Satan, Satan, right? These are not good behaviors. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's being one thing on the outside, but another thing on the inside. So it's, it's presenting good motives, but they're, those are masking selfish desires. Envy. Inappropriate jealousy. That's desiring something possessed by someone else, which actually causes discontent and resentment in you. Because you want something that someone else has, you feel ungrateful, discontented, resentful, And you're unable to be thankful for the good that other people enjoy. And then slander. Slander is evil speech. It's destroying another person's reputation through gossip, rumors, and lies. And here's what's most astounding. Malice, the worst of the five, often manifests itself through slander, through lies, through gossip, through tearing down someone's reputation. Do you recognize any of these characteristics in you or in your relationships? Maybe you're struggling with feeling envious about someone else's good fortune. You know, that's easy to do in our world today where we pull up our phones and we see people in Hawaii and in the sunshine and their happy marriages and their beautiful children. And it can be tempting to feel envious of someone else, not just that you're happy for them, but that you feel a sense of agitation because they're enjoying something that you're not. But how about this? Have you ever been the subject of someone else's gossip, rumors, or lies? These are sins that cause deep wounds, and they actually fracture relationships. Peter says that we're to get rid of these attitudes and these actions. Literally, he's saying we need to spit them out of our mouths as if they're poison, It should be repulsive to us to behave in any of these ways that destroy relationships. And he says, instead, we should be craving the word of God like a newborn baby thirsts for his or her mother's milk. That's how we should be. We should be craving the word of of God. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So God's word has life, is life, and nourishes life. Just like a mother's milk nourishes her baby and produces growth. The word of God is pure. That means it has no imperfections. It has no flaws. It is not contaminated. It means it will not deceive you. It will not lead you astray. It is rich and nutritious to the soul. That's the word of God. My friend Bethany just had a baby. Some of you know Bethany. And Bethany spends all her days and nights feeding her baby, nursing her baby. Because Clara was born premature. And so Clara has had a hard time feeding. She's had a hard time staying awake while she's eating. And she's had a hard time spitting up the milk that she takes in. And so she cries for her milk all the time. Every hour, every two hours, day or night. And so... Josh and Bethany are consumed with making sure that she is being well-fed, that she's being nurtured and 
getting nutrients through this milk and that she's growing. And baby Clara, all she cares about in this world is milk. She doesn't care about anything else. She doesn't even want cold cereal or steak or, you know, donuts or any of that. All she wants is milk. Milk is what feeds her, and it's what she thinks about morning, noon, and night. Do you feel that way about the Word of God? Do you feel like the Word of God, that Scripture is what actually nourishes your soul and sustains you in life? I think sometimes reading the Bible can become kind of drudgery. Um, It's just a box we check, you know, check, I've done my part with God, I've opened my Bible, I've read something, I haven't really been thinking about what I've read, but at least I've checked that box. That's how it can be. But as people, Peter's saying, as people who have been born again, like everything has changed in our lives because of the word of God, we are to be like newborn babies who crave this spiritual milk. And notice that Peter in this context is, is not speaking about milk in a negative way. He's speaking about it in a positive way. Not like other passages of scripture where milk is contrasted with meat as a diet for immature believers. Here, Peter is speaking about milk in a good way. He's saying, look, just as milk is a natural craving for a newborn baby, so the Bible, the Word of God, should be the natural craving of a born-again believer. Whether you've been born again yesterday or 30 years ago, uh, whether you're young or old, milk, the Word of God, is your sustenance for living. So let me ask you, do you hunger for the truth that God has provided in the Bible? Do you hunger for it? Are you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good through our study this year? Are you studying and reading and thinking and discussing and listening and discovering that the Word of God is good and you actually really need His Word for your life? It's really what helps you grow into maturity in in faith. Peter and James, if you've noticed, both are intent upon helping us grow up in our faith. And they know that this happens as we feed on God's word. That's the way that we grow. I love this saying. It's a quote I've read over the years. But it says that if you have the spirit without the word, you blow up. If you have the word without the spirit, you dry up. But if you have both the spirit and the word, you grow up. And we need both, right? We need the word of God and we need the spirit of God. The truth is this. The Word of God is our nourishment for spiritual growth. The Word of God is our nourishment for spiritual growth. When we taste the Word of God and we discover that His truth is good and satisfying to our souls, we begin then to want more. We discover that He is our strength. He is our teacher. He is the lens through which we view life. Psalm 34, 8 says, "'Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good.'" Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. You know, last week we took a little pause in our study and we had a time in our circles to have some conversation about what we're learning. And that time is really important because it's really good to pause and to think and reflect so that we just don't keep moving on to the next learning, but we take stock and say, hey, what am I actually learning? And let that soak in a little bit deeper to kind of solidify those lessons in our heart. James and Peter both have been providing so much practical instructions for us to live. And Peter's continuing this theme now by exhorting us to to love well and to obey and to be holy as God is holy. I was thinking this week, I want to ask you some questions to think about as you've been just think back on how James and Peter have been helping us mature. 
Um, what are you discovering about the goodness of God through the pages of Scripture? We just sang the song about the goodness of God. What are you discovering about the goodness of God? How are you applying God's wisdom to your life? And are you finding that his promises and his wisdom are the very best? Think about what we studied in James. Are you finding that you are being slow to speak and quick to listen? Are you practicing not showing partiality like James taught us a few months ago? Are you putting your faith into actively loving and serving other people? Are you bridling your tongue even in those moments when you really want to lash out? Are these lessons sinking in, is what I'm asking. Are you seeking peaceful solutions to your problems and resisting the desire to quarrel with your family members? Are you trusting in God's sovereignty for your future? Are you being patient and even experiencing joy and suffering? Are you praying in faith? See, this is what the Word of God has been teaching us this semester in this study. It's, it's taking the wisdom and the Word of God and applying it to our lives. We're ingesting it as nutrition for our souls, and we're seeking to grow up in our faith so that we can actually live out the reality of our new identity in the places where God has planted us. It's the Word that shapes our thinking. It's the Spirit that changes our heart's desires. And together they work to form us into our new identity in Christ. So Peter has begun by reminding us that we need to be thirsty babes. We need to be focused on this nutrition and the sustenance of his word. And now he's going to talk to us about being living stones. He's saying, you're living stones. It's interesting that he's, he's just described our participation with God in this process of spiritual growth. And now he's going to talk to us about how that process draws us nearer to God and helps to build up the community of the church. He says in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is actually using imagery of the stone temple in Israel to describe how the people of God make up the church. So again, the church universal, this is made up of believers all throughout who are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And the visual is of God's people nestled together in community. Um, it's Each person is dependent upon the other person, and together they form a strong building that's set on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, is that how you think about the church? When you think about the church, do you think of people as stones being carved to fit together to form a strength that is set upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? That's how Peter sees the church. And honestly, I don't think that's how we see the church in the Western world. We tend towards autonomy. We tend towards individualism. We think, well, what can the church do for me? How can the church meet my needs? What is my preference for worship style or my preference for speaking style? How does the church meet the needs of my family? How does the service times fit into my carefully crafted schedule? You see, we think of church from a very individualistic perspective. And... Peter 
doesn't see the church that way. His image of the church is as an interdependent community of people who desperately need Jesus and desperately need each other in order to live life in a broken world. He sees the church as a a community of people who are are sharing and loving and encouraging and strengthening and learning and worshiping and serving. That's how he sees the church. Because together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are so much better than we are as autonomous individuals living life in a lonely world. We're created to live in community. We're created that way. Think about all the people who have gone before us who lived in tribes, who lived in communities. That's how we're created. And when one stone is missing from the building of that wall, the whole is weakened. And so we should never underestimate our value to the larger community of Christ. We each have something to contribute to the church that makes the whole better and stronger. Has anyone visited the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? Several, many of you have. That's such a great picture because that wall has been standing for thousands of years. Um, I was in a seminary class in 2012, and I got to see this wall. But here's a great visual for what Peter's trying to describe to us. Each of these blocks of stone have been chiseled to fit in tight formation around the Temple Mount. Let's go show, show the Temple Mount, and then we'll come back to this. So straight ahead, that's the, the Wailing Wall, and it, it circles, or it used to circle completely, the Temple Mount. The gold dome right there is actually um, the Dome of the Rock. That is an actual Muslim worship space that is seated right where the ancient temple used to be. It's actually the same place where, where uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And it's the place where the original temple in Jerusalem sat, and now it's, it's occupied by the Dome of the Rock. But the Wailing Wall, which is where the Jewish people come to wail, they come to yearn for their Messiah, to come to yearn for that temple mount to belong again to them. That wall, we can go back to that wall, is a picture of what the original walls were like when Peter was writing this. This is what he had in mind. So each block of stone is carefully chiseled to fit into a tight formation, and its strength and durability is due to its construction, each stone fitting into the next, and each set in position relative to the cornerstone, which holds it all together. Now, Jesus, Peter is saying, is both the living stone and the cornerstone of the church. So he's called the living stone because he rose from the dead. He's alive. He's alive right now in heaven. He is living. And Peter reminds us that he is precious and chosen. He's chosen and precious to the Father. But he was rejected by men because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that the Jewish leaders were expecting. So they stumbled over him in disbelief, and yet God rose him to glory and exalted him. Peter pulls from the Old Testament, and he talks about some prophecies that were spoken about Jesus being the cornerstone and the living stone. He says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, Jerusalem, a stone, a cornerstone, cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a quote from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 28, 16, who foresaw that the Messiah would come as a stone that would be a sturdy foundation for some and a rock of offense for others. 
In, in ancient Israel, the cornerstone, we can go to a picture of the cornerstone. That cornerstone is the first stone that was laid when a building was being constructed. And it was considered the stone of honor. It was the, the foundation that made the whole building stable and everything else was plumb and square because of the placement of that stone. So Peter is saying, in the same way, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is our solid foundation. He's the cornerstone of the spiritual church. He's the solid foundation for living, and he's the plumb line for morality and for truth. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the builders that rejected Christ, he's speaking of, those were the religious leaders who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, and they should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Again, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 8:14 to explain how Jesus became a stumbling stone to those who rejected him. So instead of, instead of those religious leaders who knew all the scriptures, instead of them recognizing Jesus as Messiah and believing and building their lives upon the foundation of, of who he is and was, they tripped over his word and they fell into rebellion against God. Instead of actually standing on the foundation of righteousness and forgiveness, and instead of that, they tumbled over his disbelief and they fell into the hands of God's judgment. Now, I want you to note here that the idea here is not that pe some people were destined to stumble into disobedience. That's not what that word destined means. What he's saying is that they are destined for punishment if they reject the living stone who offers salvation. Because when they do that, then they're living in rebellion towards God. But this is the beautiful part. For those who believe in the living stone, those are those who become God's people through faith. And for those, for us who have believed and received the living stone by faith, Jesus Christ, we have a new identity in him. And listen to how beautiful these verses are. He says in verse 9, but you, I love the word but, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's so interesting. How many of you um, were with us for the study on the Pentateuch last year? Okay. So many of these things that Peter is saying here hearken us back to our study of Exodus. These are the same words that God spoke to his people coming out of Egypt. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God said this. He said, Now therefore, to the people of Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then later in Deuteronomy 7, 6, he said, For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God chose the nation of Israel, not because they were great or they were better than anybody else on the planet, but he simply chose them for the specific purposes that he wanted to carry out upon the earth, specifically to bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through their lineage. 
um, with his relationship with his people was such that when they obeyed him, they were blessed, and when they disobeyed them, him, they suffered some consequences. But God was faithful through the nation to bring the Messiah to, to life on earth, Jesus Christ. Now today, believers in Jesus Christ are considered the people of God. Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel and those who joined Israel. Today, all people who believe in Jesus Christ are considered the people of God. And that's not to say that God is finished with Israel. I do believe that God will fulfill his plans for Israel in the proper time. But you and I, by God's grace, are welcomed into God's family. And everything then changes about our identity and our stature before God. Let's talk about these identity changers that Peter has talked to us about. He says, first of all, you're a chosen race. What does that mean? I think it means that today believers are invited to share in the blessings of being God's people. We get to share in the similar blessings that he had for his people, the nation of Israel. Now all of God's people are his chosen people. Through Christ. It's no longer because we were born as physical descendants of, of Abraham. It's now because we've been born again by the Word and the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. We belong to His family. He says, You're a royal priesthood. You know, if you remember in the Old Testament, there was only one person who could go before God into the most holy place, and that was the high priest. Common people like us, we never would have had access to God, ever. But now, through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, living in heaven with God, we have immediate access to the throne of God through Christ. We don't have to bring animal sacrifices anymore for our sins because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins, past, present, and future. And that means that we can, that through Jesus, we have direct access now to God our Father. Can you, what an incredible honor that is. Do you know what a blessing it is to live on this side of the cross? That we don't have to go through another person to get to God. That we actually go directly to him. We can come before him fully in our condition, whatever condition we're in, because Christ is, has made a way for us. I love Hebrews 4.16 4, that says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in in, and to help in time of need. So being a royal priesthood not only means that we have direct access to God, but it also means that we can intercede before God on behalf of others. So remember, James 5.16 says to us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So we go directly and we can go directly on behalf of other people. Then he says you're a holy nation. That just means that we're a group of people who are distinct because of our devotion to God. God has set us apart as a people among the nations for a specific purpose, actually, which is to witness the good news of the gospel to the people around us. Remember, Peter said, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We're a people who have a story to tell. We have a story to tell of what life was like before we knew Jesus in darkness and what it's like after in light, and we can be witnesses to the people around us. And then the people of, he says, we're a people for God's own possession. 
harkens us back again to Exodus, where he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. Did you ever, have you ever thought of yourself as God's treasured possession? That's how he thinks of you. And I added a fifth one because I see this also, that we're to be, we are now actually true worshipers. Um, And that's because we are able to proclaim his excellencies. And we do this by living in such a way that we shine his characteristics to the people around us and by telling other people about this saving grace and inviting them into salvation. So the truth is that drawing near to God through Jesus changes your eternal identity. Drawing near to God through Jesus changes your eternal identity in many, many ways. But Peter's just told us a few. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's own possession. And you can now be a true worshiper. It's funny because we talk a lot in, in our day about identity theft. Anybody dealt with identity theft? I have. Several of you have. It's the cybercrime of the decade where somebody gets your social security number and then they pose as you to open credit, to file tax returns, to make big purchases. It's a horrible thing because if you've ever had your identity stolen, you know it's really, really hard to undo your identity once it's been stolen. Uh, For me, I had somebody steal my identity to file taxes because they thought they were going to get a return. Har, har. And... (laughs) And I now have to file my taxes with a special code that says this is actually me. And um, an identity thief tarnishes your good credit and actually steals your peace of mind for many years. But ironically, the believer in Jesus Christ actually bears someone else's identity. You have taken the name, and I have taken the name of, of Christ as my identity when I call myself a Christian. And then we do weird things. We, 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 we take on someone else's identity, and then we gather all together in the community of the church. And, you know, this is not an identity that we were born with. It's not an, an identity that we inherited. It's an identity that was given to us the minute we believed that Jesus was Lord and Savior and we received his Holy Spirit through faith. And the best thing about it is that we didn't steal this identity It was given to us as a gift. The minute we receive Christ as our Savior, we are given the gift of associating ourselves with him by calling ourselves Christians. Is your identity in Christ obvious to the people that are around you? Do others know that you actually belong to the family of God by the way you speak, by the way you love, by the way you act, um, by your prayers that you pray, by the way that you worship? by your actions? How do you think in your own life that you proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who called you from the darkness into marvelous light? How does your life tell that story? I went to a birthday party on Sunday afternoon, a friend from our church, and um, the whole party was focused on the Lord and how God had been faithful to her, how how he had healed her, actually, of something that could have been life-threatening and really changed her life. And she has a a really painful story. 
But the whole celebration that she orchestrated for her birthday was that every person would come and read Scripture and proclaim the excellencies of him who have called us from darkness to light so that that could be a blessing over her life for her birthday. And it was such a beautiful living out of of this reality that our lives are different when we come to know Christ and identify with him. Well, these last few verses, don't worry, I'm going through them really fast because I knew I was going to take a lot of time on the living stone. But the last part of this is that one of the ways that we exemplify our status as chosen people and who bear the identity of Christ is that we live holy lives. Our, Our lives actually look different. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These verses actually launch us into a whole new section of Peter's letter. We're going to find over the next few weeks as we go through our lessons that Peter is going to tell us a lot about how do we live life as holy people in a hostile world. And Peter starts by reminding us, remember that the earth is not your forever home. Christians are like visitors in a foreign land, so we're just here for a short time, and then we'll be in our true home with God forever. So the best way for us to live in this world, as Peter's reminding us, is that we have to live counterculturally. Um, we do that by, by resisting sin and refusing to give ourselves to the passions of this world that our world calls really good, but God in his wisdom tells us are destructive and they have great power over us. So he's telling us that when we live counterculturally, that actually we're able to live above reproach, and that becomes a witness to the world around us. But Peter reminds us very clearly, and we're going to talk about this more, that there is a battle raging raging all around us, and we're going to need to keep on keeping on in purity and good deeds as we wait upon the Lord. And this is the last thing I want you to walk away from today, and that's knowing that there is a war raging against you if you bear the identity of Christ. If you bear the identity of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian and you um, are living out this life of faith, there is a war raging against you. Following Jesus, it's funny because people criticize Christians by saying, oh, they need a crutch. You know, they're weak, they're, they're stupid, blah, blah, blah. But actually, I want to tell you that following Jesus is not for the weak or the faint of heart. It is not. There is a war being waged against you, and you have three enemies who are attacking your holiness and your Christian community. And here's who they are. The first is the world. These, the world are the messages from our culture that are bombarding us every day, and they're, they're, they're questioning God's goodness. They're questioning the truth and relevancy of Scripture. They're questioning things about who God is and what we believe, and we are, in this day and age, navigating more of those attacks than ever before. Um, that's going to come against you strongly. You need to know the Word of God. I believe with all my heart, you don't need to become an expert in the questions of our culture. You have to become an expert in the Word of God so you know how to answer the questions of our culture with the truth of God's Word. 
The second is the flesh. That's our own sinful desires. It's, it's, it's those parts of us that are constantly stimulating our appetites. Whether it be for sex or money or power or status or fame, we all have them. And, and the flesh will always, until the day we die, be trying to raise its ugly head against the spirit in us. And so we have to know that. We have to get ahead and have ways of living that help to diminish the passions of the flesh. And then there's the devil, a real spiritual being who's at war with God and targets God's people with deceit, discouragement, despair, all kinds of evil, and his crowning glory, malice. So this is why we need each other. This is why we can't do life in isolation. We are created for community with God. God is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He lives in community, and he has created us to live in community. The church is his gift to us. We don't live in isolation. We don't have to do it on our own. We have each other. We have a place to gather, to be strengthened and equipped and taught and worship and have fellowship and care and love and unity, and there's no place else in the world where this exists. We get it for a moment when we're all cheering for the same team in an athletic stadium and then that moment passes or your team starts to lose and it's, it's, not, it's not that anymore. Where else can people gather in today's world to find a place where Christians, like-minded believers, come together in love and community? So let me ask you this. Do you have a church home? Um, if you don't, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. Does your church feed you the pure milk of God's word? That's important. I lost a lot of time between the age of five and the age of 20 because I didn't belong to a church that fed me the word of God. And I made a lot of mistakes in that gap of my life because I believed and had faith, but I didn't know the word of God, and so I didn't live according to his word. And I want to encourage you to make sure you're in a place that feeds you God's word, which is why you're also in Bible study. So thank you for being here. Do you have trusted friends who are seeking to follow Jesus? People that you can invite into your struggles and pray, walk through life with. Because Peter has reminded us that God's people enjoy a new identity and a new community in Christ. And he told us who we've become, right? We're women who thirst like crying babies for the word of God. We are living stones being built up into a spiritual church. Every one of us is important and has a place to make it stronger. And we are people who pursue holiness in the midst of a hostile world, right? And it's hard. It's not easy. It's hard. So will you stand and let me pray that God will help us to live out this reality in our lives. Father, we come before you today in just humility. First of all, we're, we're so grateful that you change our lives in this way. You change everything about who we are. You invite us into your family through faith in Christ. You give us this amazing blessing of this new identity that we have access to you. Oh, Lord, we can come to you anytime and be in your presence. What a gift that is to us. What a gift it is to us that you change the desires of our hearts, that you give us different passions, and you warn us about the things that will seek to pull us back to the darkness. You give us your word to give us truth and an anchor, foundation for our life. We thank you that Jesus is the one who keeps us stable and strong and firmly rooted. He is the cornerstone of this church. And I praise you, Lord, for each person who's so instrumental in 
building up your church on earth. But Lord, also, we need your help. There is a war that's raging. There are messages from our culture that are bombarding us, and there is the passions of our own flesh that seek to draw us back into old patterns. And it's hard to live as holy people in a hostile world. It's so hard. But we believe that you are our strength, you are our foundation, you are our plumb line, you are our truth, and your word is what feeds us and strengthens us and helps us to grow. And so we pray, Lord, would you be faithful to help us grow as we open and digest this wonderful word that you've given us. Help us now as we go into our discussion groups to really sharpen each other as we discuss this passage. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.